you and I both know that we live in a world that doesn't always tell the truth. It's true, right? Most things in life are kind of unreliable, and we just learn how to trust most things as being mostly accurate. I mean, aside from physics, geometry, math, chemistry, and God, most few things in life always tell the truth with absolute exception. Gas gauges can lie. Scales can lie. Judges can lie. Politicians can lie. Parents can be dishonest. Ingredients on food packages can be misleading. Clocks can be wrong. Stats can be manipulated. Our eyes can play tricks. Even pictures and cameras don't always reveal the whole truth. So you see, we just live in a world where most things have a certain measure of unreliability. Where things are not always what they seem on the surface. And you see, that's true also inside the church as well. I mean, it's sad to say, but the reality is that, is that people aren't always what they profess to be. Things aren't always what they seem to be on the surface. And sometimes it's really, really hard to tell true believers from make-believers to tell the wheat from the chaff, to tell a legitimate faith from counterfeit faith. You can't always tell on the surface what's actually going on inside the soul. And yet, having said that, be that as it may, it's not as if there's no criteria. It's not as if there's absolutely no way to be able to tell if our salvation is authentic or counterfeit because, because according to the Apostle John, there are but two realms to which you can belong. There's the realm of darkness and there's the realm of light. Darkness is the realm of spiritual death. Light is the realm of eternal life. And according to the Apostle John, the way to tell which realm you belong, one of the most tangible realities which tell the truth about whether our salvation is counterfeit or legitimate is, get this now, if we have sacrificial love and affection for one another. That's how you tell. Because math tells the truth. Physics tells the truth. God tells the truth. And love and hate also tells the truth about the realm to which you belong. And that is exactly what John tells us in our text this morning. That a life of love or habits of hate more than anything else in our lives, always tell the truth about the condition of our souls. And the reason why John brings this up in the first place is because there were some rotten apples in the bushel of the church. There were some clever false teachers who had tiptoed into the fellowship of the churches over whom John was responsible. And under the influence of their teaching, they caused real confusion about the doctrine of salvation. They claim this secret knowledge from Christ to which only a special privileged few could gain access and, and as you would understand, this polarized the body. This, this fractured the fellowship because like all good false teachers, they not only brought confusion into the body, they brought division to the body. Things got clicky and weird and tense 
and odd and divisive and suspicious. And John gets wind of this garbage blowing through the church and like a mama bear protecting her cubs, writes a letter in which he unfolds all of the evidences of what it looks like when you truly have eternal life. And what it looks like when you truly have eternal life is authentic love and affection for the souls of other people because love and hate always tells the truth. And to be totally honest, I knew that the Apostle John cared about love. I knew that he wrote about love in this letter. What I did not know is that roughly two and a half chapters of this five-chapter letter would unfold a provocative theology of love and what it looks like in the lives of believing people, which means John really wants our attention this morning when it comes to love. That he wants us to see that if Christ is the head, and we are the body, then what it is that courses through the veins of our fellowship is supernatural love and affection for one another. Now, having said that, at the outset, however, I think I should tell you that what John means by love and what he means by hate are not at all what the culture means. Because our culture presently has things that it calls love and hate, things, definitions of love and hate that, to be totally honest, are frankly backwards and bizarre. Which means anytime you preach on love, there's always a bit of deprogramming that needs to be done. See, we need to redeem the words of love and hate this morning. We need to unbaptize them from the man-centered, social justice, politically charged insanity of a culture in darkness. And we need to come back to the Bible's definitions of love and hate this morning because love is more loving and hate is more hateful than most people have ever even realized. So let's go to the text. Let's go to the text and let's see the truth about love and hate and how they always tell the truth about the realm to which you belong. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see five black and white facts. Five black and white facts about love and hate that always tells the truth about the realm to which you belong, be it darkness or light. That's where we're going. Five black and white facts about love and hate that always tells the truth about the realm to which you belong, be it darkness or be it light. Black and white fact number one. Number one, love has always been central to Christianity. Love has always been central to Christianity. Look what John says there in verse 7. It says, Beloved, I am not writing to you a new commandment, But an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word or the message which you have heard. Now, you remember, I hope, what John is doing here in in chapter 2. In verses 1 and 2, John put Christ on display as the renaissance man of eternal life. Remember that? He exhibited Christ as this do-it-all Savior who has done it all for sinners like us and who in and by Himself solves every single dilemma caused by the virus of sin. That's verses 1 and 2. But you see, verses 3 through 17, on the other hand, provide the corroborating, 
validating, authenticating evidence in our lives that proves that we have been saved by the redemptive achievements of Jesus Christ. The question is, what is that evidence? How do we know? How do we know that we are the recipients of eternal life? Verses 3 through 17 gives the answer. And in verses 3 through 6 in particular, last week we saw that John said that obedience and holiness, that highly imperfect but ever-increasing obedience to the commands of Christ is the forensic proof that our faith is real and that we are not imposters. But you see, in verses 7 through 11, where John reveals that how you treat people and specifically, treat other believers in the church is one of the clearest displays of the spiritual realm to which you belong, be it darkness or light. And so look what John says about love again in verse 7. Beloved, I'm not writing to you a new commandment, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. Now, did you notice what John did there? Rather, what he did didn't do? He didn't even use the word love, did he? In fact, aside from his term of endearment, beloved, he doesn't even use the word love until we get to verse 10, and yet we know that love is exactly what he's talking about. How do we know? Because when he says the words, I am not writing to you a new commandment, but an old commandment, he's playing a little game of word association. Remember that game? I say one word, you say the first word that comes to mind. Well, when John says the words, old and new commandment, the first words that would have come to their mind were John 13, 34, and 35, which says what exactly? You know what it says. Christ said this to his disciples. I, a new commandment, a new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you should love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So you see, without even mentioning the word love, when Christ talks about, when John talks about old and new commandments, that would have triggered in their minds the very words of John 13 about radical love that changes the world. And what John says about love is that it's not new. This is old. Not old in the sense of outdated or irrelevant, but old in the sense of a priceless antique. Old in the sense like fine wine that gets better with age. Old in the sense that this has always mattered and this has always been central to everything that we have ever believed, which is exactly what John says. Again, look at the text. Beloved, I'm not writing to you a new commandment, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. What does he mean by that? What What does he mean the commandment that you had from the beginning. And, and the word that you have heard, what, what does he mean? I think he means from the very day that you heard the gospel. From the very moment of your conversion, it was declared to you that to be a Christian means a life of radical love and affection for other people. You've always known this. Just think about it. 
a salvation message about a God of infinite love who sent his beloved son whose sin-bearing death is the greatest expression of love in history. That kind of message automatically comes included with it the implication that those who embrace this gospel, those who embrace this Savior, take on a life of love and affection and sacrifice for other people. It's all self-contained. Because you remember, don't you, watching those commercials as a kid? Those toy commercials would come on advertising the greatest toy ever in the history of the world that made sounds, blinking lights, moving parts. And yet there was always that kind of mildly bad news and fine print at the bottom of the screen. Remember what it always said? Batteries not included. But you see, that's precisely John's point is that love always comes included in the Christian life. We enter into the Christian life, into a life of love and affectionate sacrifice for other people. When we yielded to Christ in that moment, we were embracing, we were embarking, whether we knew it or not, we were embarking upon a life in which the consuming focus for our lives would be doing whatever it takes to do what's best for other people. Because Christ did say, did he not? By this, by this you will know that you are my disciples if, if you have love. From one another. See, the New Testament is clear and unmistakable. We enter into the Christian life not to improve our personal quality of life, although that does happen, but rather to get saved is to enter into a life now lived for the supreme good of other people. The question is, did you know that? Did you know that love for others is not new, but the commandment that you have had from the beginning? Did you know that when you first heard the gospel and you first yielded to Christ in that moment, did you, know, did you realize the mission that you were embarking on in that moment? That the gospel message that you believed and embraced had self-contained instructions about how to live the Christian life. What I'm asking is, did you know that in embracing Christ, you simultaneously embraced his vision for the church, which was daily dying to yourself to do what's best for other people. Now what that means and what that looks like, we'll get to that, but that brings us to black and white fact number two. Black and white fact number two. Love or hate reveals your realm. Love or hate reveals your realm. You know, one of my strange fascinations in life is accents, and particularly accents from the UK. I find that really interesting. I also find it interesting that in a country reasonably the size of Louisiana, there are 40 different accents, and all of them reveal the exact precise region that you're from. It's really interesting. Most of the time, I can't tell the difference between the accents at all, but they can tell the difference. They can always tell the difference. And you see, in the exact same way, we can tell the difference between a make-believer and a true believer, because love and hate always tells the truth about the realm to which you belong, be it darkness or light. And so look what John says in verse 8, especially in contrast with verse 7. 
Beloved, I'm not writing to you a new commandment, but an old commandment which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. Again, literally, again, I am writing to you a new commandment which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light already is shining. One of the things I love about the Apostle John is that he is at times wonderfully baffling. He, look, he counters his own claim. I'm not writing to you a new commandment. Actually, I am. Which is crazy, right? Because logically, logically, something can't be true and not true at the same time, right? Something can't be black and white all at the same time. Something can't be left and right all at the same time, except for this. The commandment to love can be old and new, and it is old and new, because although we've had the commandment since the moment of our conversion, which makes it new, it is unlike anything else the world has ever seen. Wait, we've had it since the beginning, which makes it old. There it is. But it's unlike anything the world has ever seen, which makes it new. Do you see? You see, when Christ commanded his people, his church, to love one another, he called it a new commandment. He called it a new commandment. You see, Christ took the command to love one another, the old command from Leviticus 19, and he raised it to the highest possible standard that could possibly exist, namely to love one another as he has loved. Isn't that what he said? John 13, 34. I give to you a new commandment that you love one another. Big deal. We've heard that. No, no, no. Listen carefully. Even as I have loved you, that you should love one another. That right there is why the commandment to love is new because never before in the history of the world was the standard of what love is so exceptionally high. You understand, Christ is not calling us to love better than we did before, but to love one another as he has loved. This is a new commandment because this is a new way of loving that is absolutely unparalleled and unprecedented in the history of the world. The question is, am I, are we as a church ready to embrace this kind of love for one another? Because you understand love is the mission, love is the catalyst for a global mission of undaunted courage, which means if we don't first have love for one another, there is no mission. But when we do love in the way that Christ describes, it says everything about the realm to which we belong. Because look at John's language. His language is baffling here at first. He says again, I am writing to you a new commandment. Here it is. Which is true in him... And in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light already is shining. The question is, who is he talking about here? What does he mean that the command to love is true in him and in you? Who is the him here? Who is the you here? Well, the him is Christ himself and the you is authentic believers. And that's true, isn't it? The the new commandment to love is true in Christ because nobody, nobody ever loved like this man did. 
nobody ever in the history of the world. Why? Because this man wasn't just a man. This man is God. So John is right. The new commandment to love is true in Christ. Infinitely true with absolute perfection. But at the exact same time, however, John says that the new commandment to love is also true. It's also true in you. And by you, he means authentic believers saved by sovereign grace. True believers saved by the electing love of God and awakened by the Spirit do display imperfect but undeniable manifestations of Christ-exalting love for other people. That's what he's saying. And so the question is, so? So what? What does that prove? It proves, listen carefully, when we as the new covenant community call the church, when we love in the way that Christ calls us to love, it proves, get this, that a new world order is coming. That's what it proves. When we love in the way that Christ commands, it proves that a new world order is coming. What I mean is, when Christ and his people, the church, display radical, sacrificial, affectionate care and love for one another, what, when that happens, what we are doing is that we are giving a preview and a picture to the world of what the future will be like when all sin and darkness is permanently destroyed. Did you know that? Because look at the end of verse 8. It's exactly what John says. It's what it proves. I am writing to you a new commandment which is true in him and in you. Notice the because. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light already is shining. Do you see his point? It's really profound. Look at his logic. Christ loves and you love. And what does John call that? He calls it light. That is already shining in the world. Because you notice that there are two realms there in the text. There is the darkness and there is the light. The darkness is passing away. The true light already is shining. And the true light that is already shining is Christ and his new covenant community of believers called to the church. And when they love, when we love in the way that Christ commands, when that happens, we give the world a sneak preview to what the world will be like when it's only always filled with light. When it's only always filled with love. That's what this portrays. When we do this right, we give a sneak preview, a theatrical trailer of what the world is going to be like one day. Because as John says, the darkness already is passing away. The darkness, think about that, the darkness is not winning. The darkness is not winning. We see it More than ever, it is not winning. It is passing away. The true light already is shining. What that means is, is that small and outnumbered though we may be, as people get saved, and as we learn how to love better, we 
are a preview of the coming light that will take over the world. Which is staggering. It's a staggering reminder to us of how central the church is to the entirety of God's plan. How central love in the church is central to the entirety of God's plan. Because you know, you know that he's talking about the church. When, when, because when John says that love is true in you, that is not a singular you. That is a corporate you. That is a plural you. Or as some people I know call it, what that is, is a y'all. First and last time you'll ever hear me say that. You have to understand the church... The church is an embassy of light in a kingdom of darkness. And love is the voltage that radiates the worth and beauty of Christ to the world. And so the question is, how can you, how can you help make Christ community an embassy of light in a kingdom of darkness? How can you help make this church a sneak preview of what the world will be like when all sin and darkness will be permanently extinguished? Lots of answers to that. Here are two. Number one, redemptive relationships. Redemptive relationships. And what that is, is the mutual discipleship of care for one another's soul as your top priority. These are the hardest relationships to have. No one is naturally good at these. This requires supernatural power. It is where your growth is my top priority. My growth is your top priority. You see, you need to develop relational platforms where you can do the one another's to and for one another. You need to develop relational connections in the body where their deliberate aim for you and your deliberate aim for them is deeper trust and treasuring of Christ. And the more we do redemptive relationships, the more we do biblical relationships, the brighter and more compelling our witness as the church will be. And the greatest platform for these, by the way, are small groups. Because lights only work when wires are connected And the church's witness is only effective when we are connected to one another. Number two. We become an embassy of light in a kingdom of darkness when we practice hospitality. When we practice hospitality, which seems small, but it's not. It's not. And I define hospitality in this way. It is the grace of Christ in edible and domestic form where we have people into our homes, especially newcomers and strangers. That is hospitality. And the Great Commission literally cannot happen without it. Cannot. And added to that, using your spiritual gifts to to strengthen the church. I mean, those kinds of things radiate and display supernatural love of Christ into the world, which raises the question, doesn't it? John has revealed that there are but two realms to which you can belong. There is the darkness, and there is the light. So the question becomes, to which realm do you belong? Are you part of the darkness that is passing and fading? Or are you a part of the light that is already shining in the world? And how would you possibly know? That's exactly what John answers, begins to answer black and white fact number three. Black and white fact number three, those who hate belong to the darkness. Those who hate belong to the darkness. 
you know, one of the things I learned in film class is that you should, you should pay very special attention to the use of imagery and symbolism in film. And it's everywhere in film. It's like a code. Like it's, it tells the story beneath the story. It's called subtext. And you see, one of the most well-used symbols in film is the use of shadows and darkness to portray something about a particular character. You see, anytime there is a character whose motives are suspicious or who may not actually be who they claim to be, you watch this at some time in the film, that character is going to say something extremely important, but they will do so with a shadow of darkness covering his face, which means there's more to the story. They may not actually be who they claim to be, and that's exactly what we see in verse 9. It's precisely how John describes particular people. Look at the text. He says, The one who says that he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. So you see the logical flow from verse 8? Having established that there are but two spiritual realms to which you can belong, two opposing realms, darkness and light, John here reveals that no matter what someone claims, if they hate their brother, they are dwelling in the domain and dungeon of darkness. And you notice it's a quotation. Look what it says. The one who says... The person who says he is in the light. And again, I think he's quoting these false teachers and their little groupies who follow their teaching. And again, this is a wonderful thing to claim. I hope you're in the light. I think John would say, I hope you're in the light. You should be in the light. I want you to be in the light because to be in the light is to have access to salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. It is to be awakened by sovereign grace and to be the recipient of eternal life. That's exactly what you should be is in the light. The problem is, the problem is just because you use the words doesn't mean they're true. Because like film class taught me, these people said what they said with a shadow over their face. Look again at what he says. The one who says that he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now, meaning at this very moment. You see, that's how we know. That's how we know if we are in the darkness is if no matter what it is that we claim, if we hate our brother. Which raises three questions, doesn't it? Raises three questions. One, what is hate? Two, who is the brother? And three, what is the darkness? Those are the questions we need to get to the bottom of. What is hate? Who is the brother? What is the darkness? Let's begin with the middle question. Who is the brother? And you know what that is? That's code. Biblical code to describe your spiritual family who, like you, are equally chosen by the Father and purchased by the Son. John doesn't mean a sibling. He means a fellow saint, saved by the infinite mercy of God. And referring to using this terminology of brother, that does two things. One, it defines the church in terms of a family, which is interesting. And number two, it makes all believers absolutely equal in Christ, doesn't it? It's exactly what that does. We are all children 
under one Father, redeemed by the Son, which puts into real perspective just how wicked hate really is. Because if you hate those with whom you claim to be members of God's family and with whom you are equally undeserving members, recipients of eternal life, John says, I don't care what it is you claim. You have no assurance that your salvation is real. But what that does is raise question number two. What is hate? What is hate? I mean, like biblically, not culturally. Biblically, what are we talking about here? Because because hate is not what you think. It's worse than you think. Because when we think of hatred, don't we automatically think of cutting words and acts of violence? We think of Hitler... KKK and the man who beats his wife, and that's true. That is hatred in in its grossest manifestations. However, to really get this, we need to expand our definitions a little bit. You see, hatred, biblically speaking, when you reach your hand down into the grimy drain of the human heart, we find out that hatred has as its root idolatry. Hatred has idolatry as its root, or more precisely, self-idolatry. A self-exalting idolatry, get this now, that refuses to own the spiritual growth and health of one another. That is hatred. That who you are and what you want has to come at at any, any price, no matter the cost, and if someone gets in the way of that, then that's going to dramatically affect how I treat you. You see, hatred is, get this now, hatred is a self-exalting idolatry that will not own the spiritual health and growth of others as your top priority. Think about it. Proverbs 13.24 says that if you refuse to discipline disobedient children, that you hate them. Proverbs, I didn't say that. Proverbs says that. Why? Why is that true? Because clearly a parent who doesn't shepherd their kid doesn't care about their souls. Galatians 3.13. Yeah, Galatians 3.13. Paul says, through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. But then notice what he does. He turns right around and Paul says that the opposite of love is to indulge in the desires of the flesh which includes immorality, impurity, passion, idolatry, jealousy, outbursts of anger, and drunkenness, which means all of those things are hatred for other people. Did you know that? Drunkenness is to hate people. Immorality is to hate people. Jealousy is to hate people. Do you see the connection? Hate in biblical terms is a self idolatrous obsession with our own private pleasures and lusts that refuse to own the spiritual growth of others as our highest aspiration. And you see, John's point is, if we see ongoing unrepentant patterns of that in our lives, what does John say is the only conclusion? Look at verse 9. The one who says that he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in The darkness, even at this very moment. So what is it? What is John's apostolic conclusion? 
of those who say one thing but actually exhibit hatred in their lives, who, who, who only care about their private pleasures and desires at the expense or exclusion of other people. John says, I don't care what words you use. Talk is cheap. Hatred. Habits of hate in one's life always reveals the realm to which they belong and the person who hates his brother is in the darkness even at this very moment. Which means they're spiritually dead and need to be born again. The question is, do you see unrepentant patterns of hatred in your life? Do you see habits of self-idolatry that refuse to own the spiritual growth of one another as their top priority? And if you're like, well, Jared, do you? Absolutely. And in fact, if you want to hear traces of that in my life, I'll be standing right here after the service and I'll confess to you everything. Everything. that I, I, I am in the boat with you here. But, but this means, though, as I'm asking this question, I'm asking, might you actually be in the darkness regardless of what you claim? And I know that's a loaded question because none of us, none of us loves in the way that we should. I mean, we, we are not even relatively close, which is exactly why we needed a Savior to come. And that Savior did come, and He did two things. He did two things. One, He came to provide forgiveness for our failures to love in the way that we should. And number two, he came to so transform our hearts by renovating grace so that we can love others in the way that we must. And the best way, in fact, the only way to grow in love and affection for others, the only way to do that is to ponder the glory of Christ's love from the pages of Scripture. That's how we grow. Because Paul did say, didn't he? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. What does that look like? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, becoming in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see? the more glory we see of the love of Christ, the more we will begin to love in a way that resembles Him. Which brings us to black and white fact number four. Black and white fact number four. Those who love abide in the light. Those who love abide in the light. Now again, remember what it is that John is trying to prove here. John is not saying that love earns a spot for you in the realm of light. He's not saying that doing nice things earns a spot on the varsity team of the kingdom of light. That's not his agenda. Rather, he's simply saying that a life of love or habits of hate reveal the spiritual realm to which you already belong. And here John says who it is who belongs to the realm and kingdom of light. Look what he says in verse 10. The one who loves 
his brother, literally is loving his brother, patterns of love, is abiding in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And there it is, a life of love always tells the truth about the realm to which you belong. And here John says that those who love their brothers, those who love their redeemed family and comrades in Christ, John says that they are abiding in the light, which means the question we have on our hands is, what exactly is love anyway? What, what is this? What are we talking about here? Not what the culture thinks, what the Bible thinks. Because you see, if to hate is self-idolatrous obsession with our own private pleasures that refuse to own the spiritual growth and health of others as our highest priority, and it is, then that means that authentic love is doing the opposite of that. That's exactly the case. It is to own the spiritual health of others as our highest aspiration. In fact, I'll take it even a step further. Love is to own the spiritual health and joy of others as our highest aspiration. You see, love in the Bible is conceived in terms of doing whatever it takes to do its best for other people. But you see, what that does is raise the question, well, okay, what's best for other people? And the answer is, Christ himself is what's best for other people. That means then that love is doing whatever it takes, even at great cost to yourself, to help others see Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. That is love. Doing whatever it takes, even at great cost to yourself, to help others see Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that He is. That is love. In other words, your job for people is to make tangible the most beautiful and satisfying reality in the universe. Which looks like what, exactly? Well, believe it or not, it's not super complex. It is supernatural, but it's not super complex. You see, whenever you show up to church on Sunday morning or to small group or anywhere for that matter, you have one ultimate aim and agenda. One ultimate aim and agenda for everywhere you go. Here it is. Not to make yourself a big deal, but to make Christ a really, really, really big deal. Because you realize, you, you understand that all week long you are interfacing with people who have hurts and concerns and temptations and challenges and heartache and pain and agony and anxiety and fear. You, we are interacting with people all day long that have that on their minds all the time. And you see, every single one of those things can only ultimately be fulfilled, be filled by Christ. And so your agenda then is to mediate and portray whatever it is about Christ that anyone needs at any particular moment. That is love. To mediate and portray whatever it is about Christ that anyone needs at any particular 
moment. Sometimes it's a hug. Sometimes it's an encouragement. Sometimes it's to stop and pray. Sometimes it's to stop and listen. Sometimes it's instruction. Sometimes it's correction. Sometimes it is admonition and reproof and counsel. You name it. Whatever it is about Christ that anyone needs at any particular moment. You see, a loving church is made up of 10,000 intentional moments a week where we have our senses finely tuned, eyes open to what's really going on in people's lives. The question is, do you know what's really going on in people's lives? How can you make tangible this week the sufficiency of Christ to the people in your life? And maybe the question is, are you even close enough to anyone in the church where you can even be able to to minister in that way? Or, put it this way, another question is, are you vulnerable with your own weaknesses and struggles so that people can minister the sufficiency of Christ to you? Do you see? Because that is love, and love always tells the truth about the realm to which you belong, which is exactly the point that John makes. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, the one who loves his brother is abiding in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. That's really interesting. People who love abide in the light. Meaning what? Meaning they don't earn that status. Rather, it's those who have that status. Christians who love reveal their status as belonging to the realm of light. In other words, their salvation is real and you can see it. An authentic care for other people. But did you notice that last comment in verse 10? John says literally that those who love abide in the light and there is no stumbling in him. There's no cause for stumbling in him. Meaning what? Well, people stumble when they walk in the darkness, don't they? And that word stumbling there, that doesn't mean clumsy. It means condemned. Like seriously, every time that word is used in the New Testament, it only has really scary connotations. You see, some people are good candidates for a heart attack or cancer because of the way they live. Other people are good candidates for hell because of how they treat other people. See, John's point is very simply this. In the lives of people who are loving, loving people, there is nothing in them that would ever lead you to believe that they are living in the darkness and headed for destruction. Turn that on its head and say it the other way around. What he means is the most validating evidence in someone's life of authentic salvation and faith is in affectionate love and care for the souls of other people. And to the degree that you don't have that, John says, you have every right to question if you are in the light. Which brings us to black and white fact number five. Black and white fact number five. He says, those who hate are deluded and blind. It's black and white fact number five. Those who hate are deluded and blind. And you know, for whatever reason, in God's strange providence, um, I've had more than my fair share of interactions with people who are drunk or on drugs. For whatever reason, maybe I just have one of those faces. Out in public, I'm approached by people who are drunk or on drugs. And what's really interesting to me 
this is sad, what's interesting to me is that almost with very few exceptions, maybe one, I tried to remember, was there ever one exception to this? Maybe one time, and when I was approached by someone who was drunk or on drugs, almost every single time, without exception, every single one of these people thought they were doing okay, even while drunk and high, that they were in control, that they had things figured out, that everyone else was to blame for their problems. And I do not doubt for an instant that at some time in their life, I'm sure they were wronged by someone in a really treacherous way. But you see, the problem is what made their lives so sad is that they had no perception of reality. Their vision was warped and and mangled. And at the end of the day, all they were really after was their next drink or their next fix. And they had no idea that sooner or later, unless something radical or supernatural happened to them, their destination was going to be the city morgue. And that's kind of how John talks about the people who are walking in the darkness. That they're deceived. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and is walking in the darkness. And he has no idea where he is going. Why? Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, by now, John has made his point clear and obvious, right? I mean, we have no question as to what he means. A life of love and habits of hate always reveal the realm to which you belong. A life of love, however imperfect it may be, a life of love for you and affection for your comrades in Christ reveals that you are a part of the new world order, the light that is already shining in the world. Habits of hate, on the other hand. Those whose lives don't promote the spiritual growth of others as their top priority, despite what they claim, they are in the darkness, and they walk in the darkness, and they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. And at this point, we just want to stop John and say, John, okay, can you give me some examples of what you're talking about? Can you help me understand what this looks like in real life in the church? Because I understand your words, but I'm having a hard time understanding what this might actually look like. And I think John could possibly describe these kinds of people. Let's call them congregational profiles. For instance, number one, there is the grouchy servant the grouchy servant, and we've all known people in the church who are grouchy and grumbly, and we're gracious with them, and we put up with them, and oh, that's just the way they are. And, but there's those people that just always have a complaint. They're never satisfied. And they never actually find out how anyone else is doing spiritually. They show no real concern for anyone else's soul. I mean, maybe they've got their niche ministry, and that's their thing, and that's what they do, and that's kind of what thereafter and don't touch that. that that's mine and but they never really manifest any real spiritual care for anybody else and i think john would say to be totally frank that person has no real assurance that they're not in the darkness are you the grouchy servant number two there's the guarded professional the guarded professional and This is the person who is generally put together. Clean-cut, moral, otherwise upstanding person, respectable person, but they are guarded and private, and they never let anybody in. 
They invest in no one, show no real spiritual care for anybody. They're plenty willing to criticize and point fingers and identify what's wrong, but they are unwilling to serve and sacrifice for others in a humble, vulnerable way. And I think John would say it doesn't matter how clean cut and how respectable they might be. They have no assurance that they're actually in the light. Are you the guarded professional? And then number three, there's the doctrinal pit bull. The doctrinal pit bull. And this is a person who is an unbelievable stickler for the finer points of sound theology, which is really appropriate. I mean, we should have, be striving for laser-like precision when it comes to our doctrine. Let's, let's, let's be clear on that. And however, this person is different in the sense that they're typically nitpicky and critical, and they never actually exhibit any real care for anybody. And I think John would say, your deep concern for the truth is right. But your utter lack of care for anybody is highly alarming. And you have no real assurance that you are actually in the light. Are you the doctrinal pit bull? There's other profiles we could give. I had four more, as you can tell. But again, this all goes back to John's main point. Love and hate always tells the truth. It always tells the truth about the realm to which we belong. And the truth is, and I close with this, the the truth is, I know what this feels like. I had to write this. I had to live with myself this week (laughs) and write this sermon on top of that. It's like, well, okay. But But the truth is, Even the most humble and loving person on the face of the planet fails to love in the way that they ought, right? Miserably fail. Because you see, if Christ is the standard of love, and he most certainly is, then the call to love is as high as it could possibly go. But there's no need for discouragement this morning. There's no need for dejection this morning. There's no need to be downcast this morning. Because you see, the same Savior that loves is the same Savior that forgives. Is the same Savior that intercedes at the right hand of the Father. Is the same Savior that Absorb the wrath for our lack of love in full. Is the same Savior who supplies all that we need through His love to help us, through His Word, to help us love in a way that puts Him on display. Which means our final charge this morning is this. Our love will only be as affectionate as our view of Christ is profound. So that means the more glory we see of who Christ is, the more we will begin to love in a way that resembles Him. Let's pray to that end together, shall we? Oh Lord, I would have rather not been the one to preach this today. But Lord, these are not my words, these are And not even merely the words of the Apostle John, but Christ, these are your words, mediated through his pen, put down on an ancient manuscript, copied by faithful scribes, 
passed down through the centuries, transmitted, distributed across the world, collated and collected in codexes, in books, printed on printing presses, sold in bookstores, purchased by loved ones, given to us as presents, opened of, out of packages, opened by us, looked at by our eyes, and what we see are the words of God himself. So Lord, I, I pray that you would help us. Lord, I pray that you would help us, even though this pinches to an, an unbelievable degree, that you would help us have a, a profound sense of joy, even as we look at words like this and, and to strive for something different, to strive for better, Lord. I, I sense in my own soul and an unwillingness to overlook offenses. I sense in my own soul, it is not just sense, it's there, Lord, pettiness, anger, resentment, feelings of pride, self-focus. Lord, I ask for something different. And I know that we all join together in asking for something different. Help us to love in a way that radiates who you are to the world. Let us be that light that is already shining in the world. In your mighty name we pray.